Good evening. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's. And I want to be honest from the very beginning and say that when I saw my name placed next to those of tonight's very eminent speakers, I felt rather as I think Pontius Pilate must feel about the creed. Delighted to get a mention. <laughs> Just a little bit unsure about the role I'm actually playing here. But actually my role is very clear. On behalf of the St Paul's Institute, I want to welcome each and every one of you very warmly for this last debate in our series, The City and the Common Good, What Kind of City Do We Want? It is a series that has been possible to put on under the dome here because of our partnership with CCLA, a leading ethical investment manager. And we've been delighted to work with them in recent years on a number of events, and we're very grateful indeed for their sponsorship and support in bringing us all together this evening. If you were not able to be at our last two debates, please do take a look at recordings of them on the St. Paul's Institute website. Important themes emerged, not least whether, as a metaphor, money and monetary exchange show us by our decisions who we have become, if we are still recognizable to ourselves, and whether humanity can manifest anything more than just survival or profit. Though complex and often floundering for a vocabulary, so many issues regarding economics, the common life, and long-term goals need to be internalized in terms of the sort of life we find desirable and good. And tonight, we continue this scrutiny of our values and behavior by asking some urgent and widespread questions of our time. What would a good bank look like? What should be at the heart of banking? Indeed, should it have a heart? Who are banks for? And just what and for whom is growth important? How does a bank's behavior affect the most vulnerable and overlooked? And how is a banking culture a more substantial, definable thing than just successful PR? In short, how might the purposes, mechanics, and rewards of banking keep integrated with issues of ethics, justice, and trust, so that they work for and within society, rather than in isolated and, at worst, arrogant self-reference? This debate tonight and this series continue conversations and learning that the St. Paul's Institute has been fostering since 2009, when on the eve of the second post-Limon meeting of the G20 in London, we hosted a public discussion with the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown and the Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. And at the Institute, we remain absolutely committed to facilitating and contributing to the process of public dialogue, scrutiny, and revaluation, not just to generate more abstract information, but to try and help a practical formation
that shapes a loyalty to the future. And with increased energy at a time when the response to the ongoing financial instability has moved well beyond regulatory reform and is rightly focusing on the issues of purpose and of meaning, all symbolized here too with such intensity by the Occupy movement. One last thing for me to say. I have at the other debates given a full introduction to the person who so kindly agreed to chair all the debates of the series. But actually, Stephanie Flanders needs no introduction at all. Quite simply, she is one of the nation's favorites. The BBC's economics editor, who manages to throw light down some pretty dark and gloomy tunnels for us all. And we are so grateful to her for steering these debates with her usual insightful, commanding panache. Stephanie will introduce this evening's speakers. So, welcome to each one of you, and over now to Stephanie Flanders. Thank you very much. As always, I always feel like I'm going to struggle to live up to your wonderful uh, introductions, and that still was an introduction. That was not a no introduction. Welcome to all of you, to the many of you out there, to the third and final debate of this series. I hope, I hope that anyone here who was on the panel for any of the previous two won't mind me saying that we're, we're hoping this will be the high point of the series. And um, certainly judging by the demand for tickets, you'd have to say that others were expecting that as well. Although I guess I think that as an economist and maybe one of the messages of these debates is we shouldn't always be relying on market forces to determine what's good and what's bad. We've had good people, debate one, good money, now good banks. If you were going to dream up in your bath who you'd like to discuss what good banking is today and what the relationship should be between our banks and the city and the broader society. You might, if you were feeling sort of lucky, say, what about the Archbishop of Canterbury and the chief executive of one of Britain's largest banks? And lo, it was done. <laughs> St Paul's clearly has something that the BBC can't always uh, offer. We're also very pleased to have a former head of the Office for Fair Trading, of Fair Trading, who has spent a lot of time thinking about these issues, and the chief executive of an organization dedicated to getting people, all of you, to use their power as consumers to shake up Britain's banks. Our keynote speaker, the Archbishop, just to tell you how things are going to go, those of you who haven't been at the previous ones, will give us a keynote speech for 25 minutes or so. I'm then going to ask the three panellists for short responses, leaving, I hope, plenty of time for questions. I know we already have many coming in. If you do have a question, write it on the bits of paper that you were given when you came in and wave your hand in the air, and please do put your name on the paper. If you want to tweet about us, and many have in the past, it's Twitter hashtag slash common good. I'll introduce the panellists sort of a little bit more formally after the keynote, but Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, as many of you know, was a businessman himself until stepping down from that world in 1989. As Bishop of Durham, he was asked to join the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards. As Archbishop of Canterbury, he has continued to serve in that role, and I'm, very, I'm rather sorry to say he is still serving in that role tonight. 
the report, which was originally going to be finished in December, he tells me was just finished literally 20 minutes ago, um, has not been revealed by Robert Peston yet, um, so remains very um, confidential. So he cannot talk about the specific questions that have been related, been talked about in that commission, the really sort of concrete issues about banking regulation that the commission has, has dealt with, and we will be hearing from the commission in the coming days about. We do, I respect that, because I certainly respect the fact that he's still here. I know he's come under enormous pressure, given the situation, to um, bow out of this. So thank you very much for being here. We respect your need to keep things general. Suffice to say, when we decided to call this, or when St. Paul's Institute decided to call this good banks, that was before the term good bank or bad bank had a slightly more specific meaning in the context of uh, banking regulation. But let's just say that when those terms are used tonight, at least by the Archbishop, we should take them in their very general sense and as have nothing to do with Royal Bank of Scotland whatsoever. <laughs> Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, good evening. I'm uh, very grateful to the organizers and arrangers of this series for the privilege of being invited, especially in such illustrious company as that of Archbishop Vincent Nichols and Professor Robert Skidelsky, the other speakers. And as Stephanie said, I do apologize that I am operating under a constraint that I particularly didn't wish. Um, and so I'm really not permitted to say anything at all about anything very much at all. <laughs> and like all good clergymen, I'm going to take 25 minutes to do that. <laughs> you may well think that this is unlikely to result in any apparent change to the quality of the content of what I say. But the reason is that the Banking Standards Commission is still in perda. And if you hear anything this evening that seems to you to be a hint, you're wrong. I have a malicious sense of... I have a sense of humour. <laughs> but I'm not that stupid. And there are no hidden clues. I don't do crosswords. I've never been any good at them, and they're not in here, cryptic or otherwise. So what I'm trying to do this evening is to explore some issues around the development of banking culture. Because in the end, if we're talking about good banks we're not talking about anything more complex than issues of virtue, value, and purpose. And so I want to talk about that, about its context in the City of London, and the question of how, if at all, the idea of a good banking culture can be developed. And by that, I don't mean good in purely efficient terms, but good in its very being, essentially good. Uh, about 10 days ago, I was speaking at a service in another large building in London, and I spoke, used the phrase about liberty under authority as being one of the ways in which we're structured to live in this country. I tried to suggest that we sit in a hierarchy of authority in this country that is presented in our Constitution as beginning with God and cascading downwards through contemporary and historic institutions with delegated powers and which gives an environment of liberty, experiment 
and development in our nation which is limited by authority and has boundaries. But the trouble with that is that we always have to ask ourselves about the liberty to do what. About 30 years ago, a famous uh, Board of Trade inquiry into a takeover remarked that in that particular transaction, everyone asked whether something was legal and nobody ever asked whether it was right. And so liberty, we may have liberty to do all kinds of things, but are they good? Jesus, in uh, one of his best-known stories, the story of the Good Samaritan, which I won't repeat to you because I'm sure you all know it. Well, I'm not, actually, but I'm still not going to repeat it to you. Um, in the story of the Good Samaritan, gives, among other things, a parable of liberty used in association with financial power to enable health and healing of someone who is wounded and struggling. In that parable, liberty is at the service of love and gratuity, of free gift. A picture of Jesus himself, of course, in his relationship to us. The victim in the story of highway robbery is initially helpless. The formal institutions of the law and a theocratic state betray the trust placed in them as the priest and the Levite pass by on the other side. Life continues on the busy road down to Jericho as the wounded man slips ever nearer death. Rescue comes from someone without obligation, in fact an enemy, but with money, as Mrs. Thatcher famously remarked about the Good Samaritan, and with much to distract them. They were on a business trip. But they move from fear and greed to gift and gratuity. Fear and greed are overcome so that the solidarity of human existence is realized through reciprocity and, incidentally, benefiting the economic interest of a local hotel keeper. That's a reasonable analysis. Don't worry, laughing. At the heart of the parable is the question, who is my neighbor? And it's taken for granted in Jesus' answer that it's a question that matters. That whether we are individuals or corporate bodies relating to neighbors, being linked into a wider network than ourselves is of huge importance. And the answer is the one who helps. Now, the social and geographical context and recent development of banking in the UK poses the same question, I think, to all our financial services industry, to each of us, but this evening to the context of the banks, and demands an answer based not only in stakeholder jargon, but in the sense of body and belonging. Goodness is the result of serving our highest interests, not of limiting our obligations. Coming back to London as a born and bred Londoner, as is my wife, but with a gap of 24 years since we moved north, is a great shock. It's a nice shock, but it's a shock. London has certainly not deteriorated, quite the reverse. 
It has as much buzz and excitement as New York, Hong Kong, or any of the, other, of the world's other great commercial cities. It is unimaginably more cosmopolitan than when we moved away. But it is also a bubble. There is wealth and economic activity here that is not replicated in most of the United Kingdom, a fact with which we are deeply familiar. Even when areas like Liverpool and Newcastle, the northeast and northwest, grow economically, they still, on average, grow slightly less fast than London and the southeast, and the wealth gap increases. The bubble effect results in many ways from the sufficiency of the city and the banking industry especially to itself. It is hugely successful. It is the world's greatest center of international finance, of foreign exchange trading, of derivatives, of almost anything else you care to name in that area. It is innovative, brilliant. It draws in the best talent from around the world. It is a buzzing place. But it can end up with self-regarding activity, like that of the Levite and the priest in the parable, and lead to a culture of passing by, of the world going on, as elsewhere the journey of banking continues. It is also a place that has generated a product that has overwhelmed the UK economy. The product, I mean, is finance, and that brings us straight back to banking. The Good Samaritan is now so fast, trading so fast with high-frequency trading, moving so fast by car and plane that she or he no longer even sees the victim. It is certainly arguable that the power of international banking in London, and when we talk about banks, we need to remember that this is the greatest world centre of of banking, we cannot just talk about UK banks, that the power of international banking in London means the UK economy has a centre of productivity, invention and energy that is not replicated elsewhere in the country. In a dystopian mood, it would be possible to imagine a future in which the international banks remain in an ever more prosperous city with ever higher property prices, in which the needs of the utterly cosmopolitan population are served by the disenfranchised residents of the surrounding countryside, what in Sparta were called the helots, the serfs, who return to their poorer villages and towns in the evening, having done their work for the day. And the only difference from ancient Sparta would be that the lifestyle in London, whatever else one may say about it, does not seem to me to be especially Spartan. Let me give you another view of wealth and money. I quote, a great torrent rushes in thousands of channels through the fertile land. By a thousand different paths, make your riches reach the homes of the poor. Wealth is like water that issues forth from the fountain. The greater the frequency with which it is drawn, the purer it is, while it becomes foul if the fountain becomes unused. 
That citation from St. Basil the Great, who lived between 329 and 370, one of the great early theologians of the Christian church, was not about simply giving things away, but about business and its service to society. Against the risk of a bubble within the UK economy, which is too big to fail, and which cannot be regulated without fear of devaluing banking or causing it to move, is this dream, this possibility of wealth as life-giving water spreading through all the channels of our national and global economy from the great, great well of talent and, pros and prosperity that is London. The usually implicit assumption that profitable companies make for a flourishing country needs challenging in that context. Profit and good return is a necessity, but it is only a means to an end. The end should be human flourishing. I do not believe that can be or should be the responsibility of government by itself or, argue, or arguably even principally. Bringing about human flourishing is a task that binds together the whole of our society and from which no one can be excluded, voluntarily or compulsorily, if it is to happen. The common good requires the fullest possible participation in society by all people. The result is that legislation and regulation should foster participation across society so that people and institutions in all sectors, especially banks because of their power, work together for the common good and selfishness is driven out. And if we want a genuine common good, a society where we can see solidarity between people and participation by all people, then we all need to act in ways that will contribute to that good, whether we are individuals or great corporations. Benedict XVI, in his encyclical Caritas in Veritate, two or three years ago, said this, development is impossible without upright men and women, without financiers and politicians, there's got to be some around somewhere, whose consciences are finely attuned to the requirements of the common good. In other words, to move from dystopia to utopia, though we won't get there, this means that good banks must have values of integration into society, mutual service to all other parts of society, reasonable but not excessive profitability, and the effective and measured distribution of wealth to ensure high levels of investment in sustainable products and things that are good. To put it simply, wealth should be held adventurously and generously. Generosity is seen in being a good neighbor. It is not only shown by giving things away as the Good Samaritan did, but also by investment, the moving of the water of wealth into fresh channels. The impact on banking of the vision of St. Basil or Pope Benedict is that there should be a deliberate, self-designed popping of the bubble of inward-looking self-regard. There needs to be significant challenge to the ultimate value of all the activities undertaken in a bank.
are they self-regarding? Or do they result in wider participation in the common good? Lord Adair picked this up very powerfully a few years ago. All these comments, though, so far in this talk, deal with the objectives, but not with the inner structure of a good bank. In 2008, during September and October, we faced systemic failure. The word system or systemic kept pushing their way into our vocabulary. System failures within banks had led to the systemic failure of the banking system. Systems are things around which there are calculation. But in the church, we are used to using another metaphor, the metaphor of, of bodies, one used incidentally very powerfully also by Hobbes in Leviathan. We've done it in the church ever since St. Paul used it to tell the troublesome, quarrelsome, and argumentative church in Corinth, isn't it encouraging that nothing changes, to stop fighting and start working together. It's a metaphor, the body, that shows us how people and institutions can work together so that they all flourish and warns us about the risks that follow if one part of the body takes over. If we are to have good banks, we need to move away from a culture of looking at systems to a culture of considering organizations as bodies and using that to drive the way in which there is governance and responsibility and loyalty. The way we treat problems and analyze them determines the outcomes we achieve. And we need our fundamental understanding of organization to be one that nudges us in the direction of virtue and not only efficiency. How we regard structures, the value of technology, the impact of remuneration, and, and this is particularly important, the spiritual and personal impact of trading only in intangibles as the principal activity of an economy or the principal sector of an economy are all things that make much more sense when put in the context of a body than an organization, an institution, or a system. Look at the impact of failures in systems and failures in bodies. The biggest difference in appreciation of problems within a, a body is that in a body, when something goes wrong, every part knows about it. It hurts. If I dent the car, or if I should say rather when I dent the car, it tends to be me in our household, I am extremely irritated. It matters to me, it will be troublesome, and it will hurt my bank balance. But if I dent myself, it's a different matter altogether. It's much harder to beat out a dent in my arm than in the front offside wing. You will be very able to come up with your own list of systems, symptoms of trauma to the body. Concerns about the breakdown of cooperation and trust, such as we saw in 2008 and 9, about the instrumentalization of human relationships, whether they're clients or employees, have been voiced by many. The worry is that we have stopped seeking human flourishing 
because we have stopped enabling human creativity to participate fully across the whole enterprise that is the banking sector. Take an example. In the last 10 years, banks adopted remuneration policies that meant that a relatively small number of employees took such a large part of the overall revenues as to make it impossible for the widest number to benefit or for there to be adequate capital, in some cases, for the enterprise to remain self-sustaining. This is a matter whose seriousness is seen much more clearly through the metaphor of a body than of a system. Think of what happens when blood ceases to flow around one part of a body. Unless urgent action is taken, the whole thing can be permanently damaged, even lost. So what are the things that make for a healthy body? Participation will result in the parts of the body that first spot a problem being freezer, freer to raise their concerns, the equivalent of a stab of pain or a building fever. A corporate culture of participation encourages people to raise issues because they will feel some sense of responsibility, even if they are in a different part of the body. You do not regulate the body except in the most general sense. You learn habits that make for its general flourishing. A change of approach like this would be a major challenge not only to issues such as remuneration, but the whole core sense of who we are, how we work together, and what we are for. It means that problems would lead to evaluation rather than calculation, mere consequentialism. Evaluation leading to challenges to train and renew, to heal, in other words, rather than calculation leading to the elimination of bits of a system that don't seem to be producing the desired return. But at the heart of good banks have to be good people. And if we want good banks, we have to believe in fallible people. Not infallible people, in fallible people. Sorry, that could be misleading. Having an anthropology, an idea of who the human being is, that is both realistic and optimistic is something that springs from the Judeo-Christian tradition. In fact, from the very heart of the Christian understanding of why God came as Jesus to live on this earth and offer hope and salvation to all humanity. If we believe in fallible people, we will work on aspects of behavior and training, that is conditioning the body, that recognize that human beings are both more fallible than a systemic regulatory system will allow and have greater potential than our pessimism might permit. The biggest weakness of all in the analysis of the failure of banks to be good banks has been around understanding about human beings. We've looked at banks, if you'll excuse a bit of theology in a cathedral, as though sin did not exist and redemption and salvation were not possible. We have been neither realistic about fallibility nor optimistic about potential. I think banks, to be good, need the fear of hell and the hope of heaven 
not merely the fear of penury and the hope of a larger bank account. This talk has tried to be mainly around context and values, seeking to suggest ways forward for the creation of culture and standards in an entirely international centre in which good is something that is understood differently by people depending where they come from, who they are, how they've been brought up, all the different wonders and marvels of our international culture. St. Basil's powerful quotation sets out a vision of a world in which finance flows through effective and generous banks to enable fallible and creative human beings to reach their potential. There will never be such a thing as perfectly good banks because in the end no human being is of themselves perfectly good. But we can have potentially good banks Banks that live with a culture that is self-correcting and self-learning, a culture that is more like a body than a system, and so develops the conscience, will, and direction that enable the common good. We see deep differences in wealth and potential at the moment. They are differences that can be eliminated, but they cannot be eliminated without good banks. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, uh, thank you, Justin. I'm afraid that you failed. I'm afraid you did say something, um, and you've certainly you have given us. Um, things to discuss. I'm going to uh, quickly introduce the panellists in reverse order and then ask them all to uh, give their comments before we go on to questions. Remember to get your questions in, wave your hands in the air. Laura Willoughby, on my far right, MBE, is a former Liberal Democrat councillor and she's been a campaigner and champion of uh, many causes, arts, sport, equality rights. She joined most importantly for us, Move Your Money UK as chief executive at the end of last year. Partly thanks to Move Your Money, four million customers, I'm told, left Britain's biggest banks, five biggest banks in 2012. 2.4. 2.4. I have a typo in my own... Uh, it's good nice to be corrected like on it. your statistics if you're economics editor. John Fingleton, on my immediate right, is uh, an academic economist and an um, expert in, in the practical aspects of competition and regulation. He was head of the Irish Competition Authority and then from 2005 to 2012, chief executive of the UK Office for Fair Trading. I should say he was also one of the first senior regulators here in the UK to raise concerns about the interbank lending market LIBOR in the autumn of 2008. And Anthony Jenkins who's been chief executive of Barclays since August of last year, having had uh, many years working within the bank. He has signalled in recent months, and some of you all have heard him, him speak, that he would like to see a change of culture. I'm, I'm certainly interested to hear what, uh, what he has to say, and I think you'll probably agree <coughs> with me. He doesn't sound like your traditional banker, British banker. But anyway, listen to yourself, Anthony Jenkins. Thanks, Stephanie. My thanks to Archbishop Justin for his thought-provoking speech. Thanks also to St. Paul's for organising this very important discussion and giving me the opportunity to contribute. 
Now, let me start with something that I've found to be true wherever my work has taken me, from the boardrooms of London to the slums of Africa. Wherever we live, whatever our background, people have the same ambitions. They want good health, peace and security, increased prosperity, and better opportunities for themselves and their families. And we know what delivers these ambitions in the long term. Democracy, effective government, the rule of law, respect for human rights, and dare I say it, capitalism. Now, I suspect that I had most of you with me up till now, but I fear I may have lost a few of you. Capitalism is, I accept, far from perfect. But I also believe that no one's yet found a better driver of prosperity or new opportunities. It is capitalism that has made us far better off than our grandparents and parents, and has lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty in Asia and parts of Latin America. And it is capitalism supported, of course, by development aid, which is now doing the same in Africa. Given the immense challenges our world faces and the lack of any viable alternative, we need capitalism to work. But we need it to work well for everyone in society. And I fully accept that that has not been the case. Capitalism is a bit like electricity, a powerful, indispensive, connective motor for progress permeating the globe, but incredibly destructive if not used properly with care and control. The financial crisis exposed the destruction that can be caused if we have capitalism without a moral compass, lacking the control that can make it a force for good. And the behavior of banks, of course, was at the center of this lightning storm. The Church of England commissioners recently said that Barclays had, quote, repeatedly let down society with its conduct. They are right. We did, and so did our industry. Banks became too focused on the short term, too self-serving, and too aggressive. We forgot at times what our role in society was and who we existed to serve. The impact of these mistakes of capitalism without a moral compass is being felt across the world. Growth was slashed and has not yet recovered and will probably not do so for many years. Living standards have fallen, unemployment, particularly youth unemployment, is rising, and there are further challenges presented by an aging population. Capitalism without a moral compass played a big part in this situation. But capitalism with a moral compass can play a big part in getting us out of it. Capitalism can be a force for good, and banks in particular occupy a unique position in society and in capitalism. Because properly functioning good banks are essential for a successful economy, which in turn underpins vibrant societies. So how should we define a good bank? Fundamental, I think, is trust that they will always act in the best interests of their customers and clients. This means looking long-term, not just over a short-term period. And it means actively thinking about the needs of all of our stakeholders. We need to weigh up the decisions that we take 
and what they will mean for communities and societies, not just in terms of mitigating negative impacts, but thinking about ways in which we can operate which have a positive benefit to society. And let me give you three small examples of how we're doing this at Barclays. First, I'm proud to say that at the end of this month, we'll have hired our thousandth apprentice this year, 81% of whom were not in employment, education, or training prior to joining us. 50% were previously on benefits. Our program means that we're meeting a real business need, which is to recruit around 4,000 people a year in the UK in a way that positively contributes to society. Second, in Ghana, our investment bank has recently led a deal working with the government there to affordably finance and design, construct and equip seven district hospitals serving rural communities as well as the provision of centralised pharmaceutical and medical supply systems. And we're pleased uh, that that was led in a consortium uh, by NMS International, a UK-based small business. And third, working with Help for Heroes, the Army Benevolent Fund and the Afghanistan Trust, Barclays has committed to offering specially tailored financial education and vocational courses to support service personnel leaving the military. We've done this because we recognize that members of the armed forces, some of them our customers, face significant challenges integrating into civilian life after serving in the forces, including managing their finances. It is in ours and society's interests that they are supported in this transition. Three examples of how a bank can operate in a way which positively contributes to society. But we need stories like these to become much more commonplace across our industry, woven into the fabric of how we do business. And that is the change that I'm putting in place at Barclays. President Eisenhower once said, a people that values its privileges above its principles loses both. I agree, and our principles at Barclays are the common values we agreed earlier this year. Respect, integrity, service, excellence, and stewardship. They are fundamental to the long-term success of the business. We want our people to bring the values to life every day in the decisions that we make. These are the standard under which everyone at Barclays will work and against which performance will be assessed and rewarded. To date, as part of our programme to embed the values, over 100,000 of my colleagues have completed a three-hour face-to-face training session. And next month, we'll be conducting a three-day online conversation, including every employee in the bank, to discuss how we can accelerate progress. It might be a simple prescription, becoming a values-led organization, but I don't underestimate how difficult this is to achieve. Cultural change of the scale we're attempting will take time. And even when you want to do the right thing, it doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. I know I will. What is important is to acknowledge that when it happens and to put it right. And I'm confident that we'll succeed 
for three powerful reasons. Firstly, this is not a new approach for Barclays. I was admonished by Archbishop Justin when I gave evidence to the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards for not referencing our Quaker roots. Now, I don't know if you've ever been told off by Archbishop Justin, but it's not a comfortable experience, I can assure you. Um, but he was right to make the point about drawing on our heritage. One of our Quaker founders, John Freem, believed that the bank was, and I quote, a moral endeavor holding money for customers on trust. So what we're doing today is reconnecting with the ethos which existed when Barclays was founded. And it's not a new approach for me either. The emphasis on values has been central to every business that I've led. Please don't make the mistake of viewing the importance I attach to this agenda as being public penance for the events of last summer. I have always believed that companies with a clear goal and with values central to their culture are simply more successful businesses. And that is why I am leading the bank in the way that I am. Second, overwhelmingly, the people that I work with in Barclays and across banking want to do the right thing. That spirit is why my colleagues are engaging so positively with the program of change that I'm implementing. And thirdly, and most importantly, I passionately believe that there is no contradiction between doing well and behaving well. In fact, what became obvious from the excesses which led to the financial crisis was that you cannot have long-term success without behaving responsibly. It has to be integral to how you operate as a company. Now, we've made a good start, but there's a long way to go to being truly a good bank. And I accept that there are many of you who will be skeptical about what I've said. I recognize that what matters is not public commitment to change, but rather demonstrating change over a sustained period of time. We have to earn the trust and permission to be believed. Just as electricity must be channeled and controlled, so capitalism and banking must serve the interests of all stakeholders in the short and the long term. Capitalism and banking with a moral compass. That is my and our ambition for Barclays, and we are happy to be judged on how we succeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, John Fingleton. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, an archbishop in a cathedral um, has the easy choice of quoting from the Bible. Uh, when an economist uh, speaks in a cathedral, um, the Old Testament that he turns to is Adam Smith. And Adam Smith, in 1776, wrote, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from the regard for their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them 
of our own necessities, but of their advantages. And I want to try to persuade you this evening that it is impossible to have good banks without having good markets within which they operate. And it is impossible to have good behavior within banks without those structures. It is very admirable to encourage ethical behavior in banking as in other business. But strong competition and markets provide the best safeguard against the fact that not everybody out there is nice or well-intentioned. Put another way, good markets reduce the tension between greed and ethical behavior. And I see good markets as an essential ingredient of a good standard of behavior in banking as in other markets. Now, in a good market, suppliers compete with each other to sell products that the customer wants and understands. The customer knows what they're getting. In Adam Smith's example, uh, going to the butcher, you see a piece of meat, you know what you're buying. Um, they make improvements and cost reductions over time. Our butchers today are very different than they were in 1776. And competition forces them to pass these reductions and benefits on to their customers. And we see this in everywhere we turn, in the lower prices and improved variety we get for computers, for long-distance telephones, um, for food, and for many other products. Now, in this sense, banking doesn't really work terribly well as a market. Um, in banking, companies lose money frequently on core products and make it up on add-ons that the customer often does not understand and often never asked for. And I'll give two examples. On current accounts, um, we persist in this country with the myth of free if in credit banking. The core current account banking product is um, allegedly free if in credit, but in actual fact, um, paid for in large part by other means. When OFT looked at this issue in 2007, we found that 85% of the revenue from current accounts came from either uh, overdraft charges on un unarranged overdrafts or on foregone interest on current accounts. Um, the, the total figures there were 2.6 billion and 4 billion, large figures in the economy. On payment protection insurance, banks competed to offer unsustainably low interest on loans funded by add-on payment protection insurance. In some cases, uh, like for the self-employed, um, this was simply mis-selling because it they could not make a claim. But for many others, it was simply a bad value add-on product. Banking's not the only market with these problems. We've seen them in other areas like extended warranties and airline pricing. Touching on the Archbishop's theme of legality, what's legal and what's right, on payment protection insurance, I think neither of these were right. On payment protection insurance, it turned out it wasn't legal. OFT sadly lost a Supreme Court case uh, where we believed overdraft charges were not right. We also thought they weren't legal, but we lost that case at the Supreme Court. But in both cases, the incentives on the banks and on the people in the banks are for their employees to get add-on sales and to structure their products um, in ways that consumers pay more than the cost for those products to cross-subsidize the other products. And I have to say, unfortunately, banks have had to be dragged um, to good behavior uh, on most of these issues. And if you look at the litany of organizations and reports that have had to be done on this, with, whether it's Office of Fair Trading, Competition Commission, Financial Services Authority, Treasury Select Committee, the Vickers Commission, and now the Banker, Banking Commission, I think we would hope that debates like this begin to lead to a fundamental change in behavior that puts an end to many of these reviews. 
Now, if, if I were a chief executive like Anthony, leading um, a program of culture change in a bank or in any large institution, I would want a burning platform to get people in that organization to change. And there's no stronger burning platform than strong competition. Uh, the economist John Hicks said, the best monopoly profit is a quiet life. And people who do not have the possibility that if they don't succeed in the market um, of losing their jobs, um, of losing their market share, they're not going to be inspired to change in the same way. And consequently, I would say that the leadership in our banks needs strong competition if they're going to succeed in driving the type of culture change that Anthony and others, I think, ambitiously want to do. So I would also just like um, to address the Archbishop's comment about the balance um, in the British economy. I think he's raised um, uh, thoughtful uh, and interesting issues there. Personally, I don't think we should be trying to strike a very even balance in the economy between different sectors. And I don't think we should worry if our finance sector is a strong sector in the economy. If we punish successful sectors, we will damage enterprise, just as if we penalize the people who frequently run 100-meter races, people will run less quickly. I think what we need to guard against um, is a different risk uh, with important and powerful sectors in the economy. First, we should not let these sectors become so strong that their political influence and sense of entitlement allows them to earn monopoly rents or to otherwise benefit at the cost of the rest of society. Secondly, we should be really concerned if these sectors, again because of monopoly profits or because of high volume trading activities in, in zero-sum games, attract the best talent from our schools and universities to work in low socially um, added value activities instead of working in science and medicine and other areas where they can have real improvement. And thirdly, we should be really concerned if these sectors are inefficient, not innovating and not providing what their customers want. And I think there are serious challenges for our banks to answer on each of these accounts. And I would prefer to focus in on those issues. So, I think in conclusion, I, just as I do not think um, that monopoly can be justified by charitable giving by the monopolist afterwards. I don't think that the measure of our banks is going to be whether they, um, they're charitable and other gestures. Instead, we will know when we have good banks, when they provide what their customers want and what the economy needs, and when they enjoy the trust of their customers. I want to wish Anthony the very best with achieving that, but I think we're still, despite improvements to date, still a very long way from it. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. And now, finally, Laura Willoughby. So I think that leads me very nicely into what is it that the customer wants? Because actually, banking is important for all of us because 94% of the British population around about have a bank account. That's about 60 million current accounts in the UK. And every single one of us has some form of a relationship with a bank. Although I'd question whether that was really a relationship that we've chosen and thought about very carefully, apart from when we knew it was definitely the NatWest piggy banks we wanted when we were 12. Um, 
if you look at banks now and you ask yourself a question, do you feel empowered about your money in your relationship with your bank? Do you feel treated well? Do you feel treated fairly? Do you feel informed about your finances and what the bank's doing with your money? Are you happy with their behaviour? Have you been treated badly? I don't think we could all be very confident of that. And I don't even know, and from my time at Move Your Money, how easy it is for any of us to be able to find out those things about our bank. Because what they don't tell us is probably more telling than what they do. It's an unequal relationship. And from where I'm standing, it doesn't feel like it's a free choice in a free market. And um, it feels slightly more like a hostage situation. So how did we get here? Well, the Archbishop talks about, um, about uh, banks' role in community. And I guess there was originally an unwritten social contract that had all the elements that he described. Banks were more like local utilities. They had a role in the local economy. They were there to lend the pounds to those people that needed it. And, um, in, and in many cases, some of that is still there. If you look around you, there's lots of really good locally-based mutual building societies that's still really rooted back in their economy and an economy that isn't London. Um, but um, customers seemed to, while, businesses, uh, while banks became more and more like businesses in their own right, looking to use your money to just make more money, we carried on trusting the banks like we always did because our parents told us we should carry on trusting them and because nobody told us any different. But behind the scenes, that business model was changing and was hidden from view. And... Um, and I think that's probably quite fundamental to what happened in 2008 because it became as a great big shock that suddenly our whole banking system that we had this view in had changed. And I think this is where I come back to what Anthony was saying, which is it's all well and good talking about the capitalist system and how capitalism can work, but it can only really work if you have an active and informed customer. But when banks spend their time hiding anything that would be useful, empowering, or to make that relationship with the customer equal, when they continue to hide that from us, then we can't make decisions as consumers and we can't make those free decisions within that great capitalist market. It's not what, that you're, te it's not what you're telling people that's important, it's what you're not. And some of the nice things you trotted off at the beginning of your speech were okay, but they did sound a bit like um, some manifestos that I've read around election time. A lot of nice words, but not a lot of substance. Although I'm not knocking that you're trying more than many of the banks. What 2008 did for all of us is realise that it was a situation that none of us could ignore. It's there right in our face. And just when we were getting used to the idea that our taxpayers' money was being used to gamble with, to make other people rich, then in came the fact that they were doing that by manipulating interest rates. HSBC have been done for money laundering in the States. There's the mis-selling of PPI. There's the big bonuses. Wow, I'm not sure about you, but that really hurt me. That made me really question why I was giving my money to these people in that way. 
And where were the regulators at that time, those people that were meant to protect us? Were they asleep? Were they being deliberately blind? Um, we now know that some of those regulators are now working very nicely for the big banks. So Hector Sants is now with, with Barclays. Um, it doesn't feel like they were on our side at the time. So what I'd say to you all is if you really want to put your mark and know where things have changed and really think if things have changed since 2008, then don't see this as a wasted opportunity just for the politicians. This is our wasted opportunity. We actually have a chance to decide where our money goes. Because even if you've got an overdraft, as we've just heard from John, it's actually worth something to the banks. So whether you're an uh, individual an institution, a charity, or maybe even a church, you can decide where you put your money to do some better good. And in September, when seven-day switching comes in, you'll have an opportunity to tell everyone else to do that as well, because there's no excuse anymore. It's going to be easy. Now, we've seen, um, from our figures, we've seen that in 2012, in the wake of all of these scandals, 2.4 million people moved their bank accounts. I want more people to join them. There are some estimates that between 9 and 14 million people have said they might move their money if it's made easier. Now, in Britain, we're more likely to change relationship than we are to move bank, um, which is a really, really sad indictment of how we feel about our relationship with banking. And I wasn't joking. I really do feel it's a hostage situation. So if you really want to show the banks what you mean move your money. And real change won't come from the hallowed halls here in St Paul's. It won't come from the green benches in Westminster. It won't even come from the boardrooms of the banks. It will come from ordinary people putting their foot down and saying enough is enough. So I want you to all go and move your money now, or maybe tomorrow, depending on how you are with online banking. Tell your friends verbally or by Twitter and Facebook, because the more the banks rely on our inaction, the more we can be certain that they won't take any. I want to thank Laura a lot because one of the, I was talking to the speakers beforehand and one of the things that has happened with these debates is there is always a question, I suspect there will still be a question, um, from the audience saying, OK, but how does this get translated into concrete action? And I think I'm just going to say whoever's going to ask that question, the answer is, well, you can start by moving your bank account. Um, I'm not sure it's the answer to every question, but it's admirably concrete. Um, there are lots of questions uh, when I want, to go, I want to go to people in the audience, but I think, uh, Archbishop Justin, I'd like to give you a chance to respond to at least a couple of the themes that have been running through um, the responses. I think, in a sense, at least in the broad idea, there's no argument about the goal that we want good banks. I think even I, as a BBC person, am allowed to say I'm in favour, I prefer good banks to bad banks. I think I'm allowed to say that in very general terms. Um, but there's a bit of a tension about the means. Um, John, as a, as a good economist, would say, similar to, what, I guess, what I would think, which is that markets and regulation, good markets, good regulation, can get us a long way there, although they are harder, perhaps, than we think to achieve. Transparency is another thing that economists always talk about, and 
John Kenneth Galbraith used to say, conscience is the fear that someone else might be watching, and that it acts in that way. Law has also talked in very direct terms about competition, what consumer empowerment can do. But in your comments and a bit in, in Anthony's comments, I know you were trying to speak more broadly and you were, you were following an intuition about our feeling that if we really want to change behaviour, it can't just be about legal and financial incentives. You, want, you were talking about needing to go beyond that and to start to have moral expectations of banks, because if we didn't have moral expectations, we couldn't expect them to behave morally. And I just wondered, I mean, we all prefer that. We'd all like the idea that people would behave, wouldn't need to have someone watching to behave well, that we could change the culture. The problem is, even in the last few years, it just doesn't seem to work. Moral opprobrium, moral suasion, when we've tried to shame people out of their big pension pots, when we've had moral suasion of companies and banks about compensation, just doesn't seem to have the kind of impact we were looking for. Even though compensation has changed in the banks, they're still paid a lot more than most people would think is justified. So I just wanted to think about the tension between the sort of means, because I think it was running through a lot of people's comments. Well, I think that's right. Um, I think I love uh, John Fingleton's wonderful illusion of efficient markets. I thought that was a theory that had bitten the dust about, dust about five years ago. Um, there's no such thing. Uh, markets, he, uh, quite rightly, Adam Smith, he quoted Adam Smith, who also, of course, wrote a book about moral sentiments, which he said were essential, and also said that whenever the, the butcher and the baker and the others get together, they only do it to create a monopoly. Uh, and so he had no illusions about efficient markets either. Yes, markets are important, but there's no such thing as a good market. There's always somewhere wrinkles, inefficiencies, lack of transparency, failures to communicate. Uh, also, as for the idea that regulation can do it, in public evidence, I'm not telling you anything secret, but in public evidence in the Banking Standards Commission... Uh, I think it was HSBC, said that they had 2,500 compliance officers and 900 lawyers uh, as a sign of their virtue. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> Keeps people in work. HSBC, I can't remember how many people Barclays in, uh, employ and in how many countries they operate. But HSBC, I think it was the thick end of 200,000 people in over 100 countries. And in the UK, 60 people uh, regulated them part-time. If you think that's going to make a difference, well, I've got a lovely palace I can sell you. So regulation and markets, forget it. Um, Morals, yes, they are important. They do make a difference. Um, Gillian Tett in the FT a few weeks ago published a very interesting review of banking remuneration over the last 100 years and showed that as a proportion of average remuneration, it's followed very clear cycles with a sharp fall after each of the scandal or periods of scandal or massive collapses of... Um, of confidence in the banks, as in the 1930s. I think it's, there isn't a single silver bullet. Regulation emphatically won't do it. It didn't do it in 2008. We had 
plenty of regulators. Markets didn't do it in 2008, but nor did moral sentiments. We have to have a combination. Thank you very much. I was worried that we wouldn't have enough disagreement on the panel, but I think we've, uh, we've established that there is plenty of uh, disagreement. Um, and I'm sure John will want to come back on that, but I think we do need to go uh, to some questions. If I could ask Paul Mills, Will Goodhart and Yannick Nord uh, to come up to the mic. And I'll just say also there's a Twitter question from uh, Ben D. Y. Rich, or Bendy Rich. Do our banks feel entitled to double-digit returns on equity? Is that not excessive profit? So... I don't know who's coming up first. I was in, in, oh, and Judith Lipton as well. Um, Paul Mills first. Is that in the wrong order? Or So the Bible equates debt to slavery. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave of the lender. Interest is profiting from the financial slavery of another. Jesus said... Putting your money with a banker is uh, something hard men do. It is reaping where you haven't sown. How can we actually have a good bank when it is a merchant of debt? Thank you. Will Goodhart. How should consumers of financial services assess the relative ethical and cultural behavior of financial services firms if they wish to use that information to direct their choice? Good question. And Yannick Nord. Uh, the cooperative bank uh, was downgraded last month, six notch, to junk. I would like to know if the panel think that sometime for a bank to be too good could be bad for this business. <laughs> and the senior executive on the co-op bank, I think, was a, is a, a pastor. I think I'm right in saying. So he had, not that that necessarily should tell us anything. But it's interesting in this context. It's interesting in this context. I think I'd stand by that. Uh, Judith Lipton, final question, and then I will uh, distribute these rather good questions. No? She's... Uh, dis oh, there's a waving... She's just coming. Hello. Um, my question is, do you, think, do you think this debate and focus on culture change in banks is a temporary distraction while the economy is still fragile? Or is this going to be the start of a real long-term shift for banks? Will things really look different when we look back in, say, 10, 20 years' time? Thank you. Okay, I suspect uh, the members of the panel have their own view about which question they want to answer. Um, but, Anthony, let me put the, the debt is slavery and merchant of debt question to you. This has actually come up in past debates because there are a lot of people who think interest in itself usury is a core part of the problem? Well, I, I understand the moral sentiment that underpins that, but I also question how we would have any growth in society without the ability for people to borrow money. 
I don't know this for a fact, but I have a strong suspicion that in the construction of this cathedral, debt probably paid a part at some point. <laughs> I was in Kenya recently. Um, we work with the power generating authority in Kenya to finance geothermal power. Without geothermal power, Kenya cannot generate enough electricity to produce economic growth and, and serve the needs of its citizens. So, um, and many of you, I suspect, in this room will have a mortgage. Um, none of us can buy a house, very few of us can buy a house without having a mortgage. So, debt is a powerful tool, but I would caveat it by saying that there has to be responsibility on behalf of the lender that makes sure that the borrower understands what they're getting into. And of course, the interest rate has to be a fair interest rate for the risks that are being taken by the lender. But without debt, um, you cannot have sustainable growth uh, in the world. And without sustainable growth, you cannot have the progress of humankind. So I would say that the, the moral complexity of this issue is quite high. So for me, it's not about debt or no debt, but it's about how that debt is provided. A lot, a lot of the tension in, in some of the previous debates we've had here has been in this desire to sort of turn back the clock on some things like credit and the development of markets, but then people actually wanting a lot of the things that go with credit and go with markets. You talk about mortgages. I should I, should, I throw you to, do you, are, you, are you remotely worried about being too good and losing money as a result? No, I'm not worried about being <laughs> yes, too I suspect good. everyone's not very surprised to hear that, actually. But, no, uh, nor am I worried about losing money through being a good bank. I mean, my view is that a good bank will be a more successful bank commercially because, as we heard from John and Laura, um, I think good banks will attract more customers to them and good banks will be more efficient and effective and so will generate better returns for their shareholders. And I'm, I'm quite encouraged by um, Laura's encouragement of you all to, to move your business because I know a, a good bank that might be able to help you with that. <laughs> Justin Welby, how should we judge? I know we're not, we are not getting into lots of specifics here, but and I'm going to ask Laura the same question, but I mean, Will Goodhart is a good question. We talk about moving. How now should you judge whether your bank is the right kind of place to be putting your bank? I think um, Anthony's said some of the things. I think John said some of the things. Laura said some of the things. Um, does it put the customer at the centre? Are you um, properly looked after when you try and, for instance, move bank accounts? Are there hidden charges, or is there honesty and integrity about what the thing costs you? Um, I think you look at the functionality of relationships. Does it have a healthy feeling about it when you read about it? Is it a place where they treat staff well or staff are motivated in ways that tempt them to do the wrong thing? Um, I mean, some of the incentive schemes in the past, both at retail and wholesale level, have been immensely destructive. And I think that's one of the things I know Barclays has changed and most other banks have changed because it led people to feel forced to sell things that people didn't want because if they didn't, they didn't get paid very much at all. And I think it's looking for how they, how they treat their staff, 
how they care for their people, how they look after their customers. And um, I think Laura's uh, thing, people tend to vote with their feet, and it's a very good test of where the good banks are. We have a, a Twitter comment. One hour into an event on good banks, and no one has yet mentioned too big to fail or too big to bail, elephants in the room. Um, in a in a broad sense, I mean, that is one of the things that hangs over this. I mean, Laura talks about us being held hostage. There is a sense in which we discovered in this crisis that the whole society was being held hostage by the banks in the sense that we're unable to punish them in some cases for having been silly and run up lots of debts because if we punish them, we're punishing the whole of our society. I can't comment on that. John. <laughs> um, well, I... I think that the, it, it's, it's very difficult to look back in time and, and, and to put everything right that you would have done if you um, if you had the benefit of hindsight. We are where we are. Um, we need to work out ways of incentivizing our banks to do what's good without providing so much insurance that they behave badly again. And I think this um, too-big-to-fail problem is a central problem. Um, and it may be a reason for having smaller banks and having a clearer ring fence, and there's some progress being made on that, but, but uh, whether there's enough, um, time, will, time will tell. I think on, on, the, on the question of, uh, um, of markets, I, I want to be just a bit kinder to the Archbishop than he was to me. Um, it's probably a good strategy. <laughs> in, in the sense that I, I see good markets and moral values as complementary, um, not, as, alter not as, uh, as alternatives and not as mutually exclusive. I don't think most people are either knights or knaves, um, but they operate in structures in which their behavior will be more knightly um, if the right incentives are there. But we can also, even without those structures, try to move society through education, through societal attitudes to just generally being more knightly. And we should be trying to do both of those things rather than expecting one or, one or the other to work. And I would say that we might be in a much worse position if we hadn't had a certain measure of, uh, of regulation. I will remind people that you know, we, we at the OFT had blocked mergers in the banking sector before 2007. We had brought the test case on overdraft charges before 2007. We started the PPI work before 2007. So much of that work was spotted by organizations like OFT well before the financial crisis. And what was really interesting was just how unpopular some of what OFT was doing was in political circles at that time. It speaks to the importance of having independent bodies and independent of the banking sector as well as, as the OFT was, to challenge hubris. Because I think one of the things that goes with a sense of entitlement in a successful sector is the sort of hubris and that politicians buy into it and that anything that, that bankers or people from the City of London say uh, must be right. And it's important to have institutions that stand up to that. So I think we need markets, we need good institutions, and we need um, good morals. I think, I, well, I'll be nice back to John. <laughs> I was responding earlier to his uh, analysis of my talk, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, the OFT was one of the most, was probably the most effective regulator, particularly in, in, in the retail market. Um, I think we all know that there's the problem of regulatory capture, and the OFT managed to stay out of that because it wasn't focused only on one single industry but covered the whole economy and, and as such managed to keep its objectivity and that's a very good object lesson. 
Laura, very briefly, just on what's Will Goodhart's question, what should we look for? And I guess, again, just very briefly, I think what's been running through all this slightly is, you know, how, what change, have you seen banks change? I mean, if we don't, if we still have a relatively small number of leading banks with networks, have you seen them really change as a result of this movement of accounts? Um, Do you think it's happening? Not yet, but what I do see is that some really good banks are being ignored. Um, for some reason, we have this perception that we should keep our money in the bigger banks because it's safer. Well, just look at who the bigger banks are. We know they're not safer. Um, out there are tons of building societies, uh, mutual building societies, credit unions, smaller banks that are actually um, been growing organically over the years, have really good business models that doesn't take a lot of looking to see what they do with their money. And you don't have to put all your money in one place. Um, oh, we must put it all in one place. We can see it on the online banking. No, you can choose where you put your savings, where you put your ISA, whether you want to put some money into your local credit union because that will benefit your local economy. So I would urge people to to actually look around at the smaller banks and see what they like and look at banks that reflect your values and they are out there and your values may be about what they put back into the local economy. So there are great banks like Handelsbanken that are one of the fastest growing banks in the country that have a local bank manager make 95% of the loan application decisions in branch. They're completely devolved banking. That may suit your values. Um, there may be a mutual building society, for example, like Cumbria Building Society only works for the benefit of Cumbria. Surely that's a better place to put your money to make it work for you than into Barclays. So I'd encourage people to look... Oh, not that I'm particularly singling out Barclays. Um, um, but, but you can put them in smaller places. It's really important you look. We're going to be doing a scorecard so people can look on different criteria about where they put their banks. And if anyone wants to volunteer to help us do that, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to try really hard to squeeze in a couple more questions and then we'll have the, a final comment. So Yasmin Chinwala and Paul Lee. And if you'll... Uh, I'm squeezing you in, so please respect that and squeeze your question in. Yasmin Chinwala. Oh, <laughs> and I've made her run. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Health and safety. <laughs> Lisa didn't fall over. Hello. The Archbishop recognised that London is, if not the global financial centre, certainly a global financial centre. Can good, or our view of good, stand up to international competition? And a very quick PS. Um, I have to admit that I have banked with Barclays since the age of eight because they gave me a rubber and a ruler. <laughs> <laughs> Throw that rubber and ruler away! Do you still Very have it? <laughs> it is my main current account. All right, I thought you were going to say it's my main ruler, but it sounds like you've lost the ruler. Oh, no, no. I still have the ruler, well, yes. there you go. You know, that's pretty good going. OK, uh, Paulie. <laughs> The, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland has this evening announced the departure of Chief Exec Stephen Hester at the end of this year. Where can possibly RBS look for its next Chief Exec? Where should they look? To paraphrase the Archbishop for the, the good person to be at, that, at, at its heart. You know, if you hadn't phrased it like that, I think I could have put it to uh, Justin... 
Archbishop Justin, but now you've put Buddy RVS into it, excuse me. Um, I'm not sure that I can put that question. We're going to have, I think I'll just go to the other panellists and then allow um, Archbishop Justin to, to have a final word. But I also am conscious that we didn't get to one of the questions. We didn't really yeah. address it. Um, so Anthony Jenkins, for last couple of words, and if you could address this question of, is it just going to be a temporary thing that people respond? You know, will you be saying these nice things for a while and then everyone will forget about it? And is there a, is there a danger of international competition kind of um, making it hard for us to be different kinds of banks? Yeah. So if we think about the state of the world, um, the world is in a difficult place. We're facing two or three decades at least of lower economic growth because of structural changes to the global economy. We have big demographic shifts. We have the problem of youth unemployment. And these problems are very complex and they're not soluble alone by governments or, or any one party. And business has to play a part in this. And this is where I think the notion of businesses that are run with a regard for all of their stakeholders in the short and the long term have a very important part to play. And I think somewhat responding to, to the points that, that John made, um, competition and incentive is actually what's going to make this work because those institutions that do serve their stakeholders in the short and long term will be more successful in my view and therefore they will attract capital and will grow and become more successful than others. And it's very important that this happens because this is going to be part of the solution for the world. And frankly, if I look around, I spend a lot of time traveling. I've been in Asia, Africa, the United States, all in the last two months. Um, this is a global theme. So I am hopeful um, that a combination of what I would describe as values and value will come together to make this a sustainable trend and that we are actually seeing, if you like, the next phase of the evolution of business, capitalism, and banking, which is essentially much better grounded and recognizes its needs to serve society, its customers and clients, its shareholders, and its colleagues. Laura, very briefly, um, do you think in an international financial system that these sort of, the, the kind of things that you were talking about, the small banks, the local banks can really get through? Well, it's not just about the small banks. You have to look at what the impact of the banking crisis has had globally. It isn't just affecting us, it's affecting everybody. The UN estimates that the banking crisis has put 100 million people into poverty. Um, it isn't just about our country and whether we're competitive. These banks have a global reach and an impact globally, and I can't see how being a better bank isn't going to be welcomed by the rest of the globe. Um, and um, small banks are making a difference. Um, both in, in, in um, the projects and the, the businesses that they're funding here, um, but by, um, by, by showing that there's a better way to do things, that they can grow their business organically, that they don't have to go for massive, massive growth in order to provide good banking services. I think it's something that we can all appreciate, that relationship. John Fieldton, um, final word. Well, I think the question on, on uh, uh, how to assess... Um, what is an ethical bank, and the question about whether the co-op bank tells us that being good is not commercially successful. Those are interrelated questions. Um, at the end of the day, 
consumers can be quite fickle, almost schizophrenic. They say they want good banks, but if one came along, they might not go to it. A good bank, for example, might very well be one that says, we're going to charge you for your current account and not charge lots of add-ons. Mm. That would be potentially a very good bank. But would everybody in this room say, recognize that and go to it? And I think that's one of the challenges I would put back to consumers, because having spent seven years representing consumers' interests, I can tell you it's often quite a frustrating experience. They tell you they want corner shops, but they go to Tesco. They tell you they want an ethical good bank, but they won't go to one if it comes along. And I think one of the important questions we must ask ourselves as consumers is if we really want good banks, we have a moral um, responsibility to try and identify one and discern one if one comes along. And I think that's an important thing for us to think about going forward. Thank you, John. And again, we have to look past the rulers and the, uh, and the rubbers, I think, when we were... <laughs> um, Archbishop Justin, I'm going to try, and I know it's very difficult. In the abstract, if you were just on a desert island, or maybe the moon, um, <clears throat> thinking about who should run a big bank, and it really had nothing to do with any bank anywhere in Britain, <laughs> just in the abstract, where do you think would be a good place to look for the person to, to run that? I mean, or in some future world where we have a better banking system. Where, where, where is the church going to bank in the future? I'm not sure I entirely know where they bank at the moment. <laughs> um, uh, I'm really not going there, Stephanie. It's a great try. I'm not going there. It's tempting, but uh, I'm not going there. But you can give some final comments, I think. I You're allowed probably. a minute or two. Am I allowed a minute or two? That's kind of you. Okay. I want to go back to, to where I ended up with what I said. I think around what we've been discussing, underlying it all is, is some understanding of what human beings are and the kind of people that human beings are. And John's comments just picked that up. Uh, when he talked about the moral responsibility on the consumer, the nature of the human being, and that includes the church, surprising as it is, because even, even some of us are, are human, um, and it's quite noticeable in the story of the Good Samaritan, by the way, that the bad guys are a priest and a lawyer. <laughs> um, the nature of the human being means that is where we start, where we understand what makes us tick, where we're realistic about our fallibility and our potential, and where we recognize that if we're going to have genuine liberty, it has to be under authority, and that's where regulation comes in but it mustn't be an overbearing regulation because otherwise there's no liberty. And I think that, from what we heard, I think there is a common theme. I mean, the, I'm not sure we had that much disagreement. I think regulation, market, virtue are all necessary, but none are sufficient of themselves because they will all fall apart if too much weight is put on them. There will be further crises. That's not something that's a secret to any of us. And so we, they might be in 50 years, they might be in 150 years. This crisis in 08 was the first one, if I'm right, since the middle of the 19th century on that scale. But they will happen again. And the answer to them is uh, a society, it seems to me, that, is, that does have a moral basis and moral values that enable it to find its balance when material things let us down rather than putting all our weight on the material things. Thank you very much.
I do feel like I've been sort of participating in a particularly high-class edition of Question Time. Um, and I hope Mr Dimbleby will forgive me for saying that. Um, certainly the quality of the participants uh, has been extremely high. And I would think it has been a high point of this series. So thank you to all the speakers. Thank you to all of you for coming and for everyone who's come to the previous ones as well. I think it's been a valuable debate. Thank you. Thank you.